There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Hey everyone, this is the Meat Eater Podcast. We're in Missoula, Montana, celebrating Lantani's birthday. (laughs) Really, we're here for the the backcountry hunters and anglers annual rendezvous, and this is number five. Why did why did it take so long to have one? Just no one ever thought to like, hey, let's have a get together because of what it takes to put it on, you know. And I think because uh, the organization's been around how long? Uh, been around for this is our twelfth year, but you know that was when we first had staff. I think was when we had the first one. So you had to have someone to plan it out. Exactly. Yeah. When I showed up here yesterday, I got here and the first thing I saw was Callahan uh, sneaking out the door going fishing. <laughs> What'd you catch? You in a two hour a two hour float? It was a little rushed. A three hour two hour cruise. A little rushed. Yeah. Um, got uh, one rainbow. You know. Um, you know, my sister-in-law lives up that river. You run the Blackfoot uh, River. Juanita. You met her? Yeah. You caught one fish? Yep. <laughs> did Kenton catch one? He did not. Was it a big one that you caught? It was a nice fish. It wasn't huge. You guys did a full-on float. Yeah, my buddy uh, uh, Ryan Thompson, Caitlin Tuig's, uh husband, yeah. Name dropping. They they live up there. Sorry. Uh, anyway, helped me out a ton, and basically had the boat on the water. We ran up there, jumped in, floated down to their house. Oh. He continued on to the boat ramp, and took care of all the stuff. 
Really? Yeah, and I came back here in time for the What did you guys do with that food? fish? Uh, released it, yeah. just like you do. I'm thinking about having Yanni's t-shirt company make me a t-shirt, and on the back it's going to be like kudzu, a dandelion, spotted knapweed, leafy spurge, and a rainbow. <laughs> and it's going to be like, um, invasive species stop invasives now. You know? How about just bonk them on the front? <laughs> bonk them, that's good. <laughs> Catch and release into a pan of grease. So now, how, what, like, what's the goal of, a, of the, uh, the whole deal? When you guys have a, you know, when an organization has an annual convention, it's like to rally people up. Do you guys actually do business? We do. We uh, had our, our only face-to-face board meeting, and then we had chapter leaders that came in from all across the country. I think we had 45 chapter leaders, and so we did some training with them. Mm-hmm. And then, like what you talked about, rallying the troops. You know, I think uh, a lot of us only see each other one time a year, and so um, having the ability to like bring everybody together, kind of coalesce, swap stories, just like kind of the traditional, you know, rendezvous where the trappers would come together. Yeah, um, and they never go- rendezvoused in this valley. They never did in this valley. That's mm-hmm. weird. Such a great valley. Um, but uh, then you have, you know, like they go home fired up, and I think, you know, we accomplish that in spades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, when you say the board meeting, the board only gets together once a year face-to-face. Face-to-face, yeah. How many people are on the board? We have uh, 10 right now. Are you on the board? Nope. Okay, you ain't over. <laughs> I'm a lifetime member. Yeah. Uh, you saw me trying to take notes on the food judging contest yesterday. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, forgot to mention that. I was going to talk about that. We judged a wild game cooking cook-off. Yeah. And uh, five teams had five teams from five different chapters. Why was it only five, five different chapters? That's just who signed up. That's who signed up. And it's also, you know, I think logistically, you know, Camp Chef was obviously a great partner in that whole thing. And so um, just logistically, that's what we could do. And so five chapters stepped up. And um, unfortunately, we were, I was upstairs. So I would love you to didn't hear do how it? it went. No, you I were in there. Yeah. So, f- yeah, five teams did it. And they all had, they, we had to rate them on presentation, taste, creativity. They're uh, trying to remember. I also rated them on state. Yeah, Callahan, I looked at Callahan's notes at one point, and he had made another category where he wrote down where they were from, which was like just bringing some weird bias into it, not even being secret. And then Callahan took all kinds of notes, and then later when we got together with the judge, he didn't refer to his notes, and every time someone asked him, or we're tallying the scores, every time someone asked him, he'd kind of look off in the sky and then give a number. Without, like, without referring back to his notes at all. Pure genius. Thank you. What were you, uh, what were you, like, had you memorized your notes? Well, or were you, like, just kind of still? I, it was very hard for me. All of a sudden, right? I felt very pressured, and everything was really, really good, and there was no crazy outlier in there. Yeah, every, yeah. I mean, everybody put a ton of thought into every dish. And it was weighing on me. A guy made, uh, one, one of the teams made bibimbap, the Korean dish, and they did it with, uh, they had it garnished on top with glacier lily, which was very pretty. That was a pretty dish, vibrant nice. colors. Uh, the, you know, the nettles. Those really nuggets. stood out. Those you were know. great. Then we, they had, uh, there was a dish that had fried quail in it, and then uh, 
some sort of hooved animal. I can't remember what the hooved animal there was. And then they had... Oh, they had uh, Elkhart in the greens. Oh! That was good. No, yeah, that's right. It was like a corned Elkhart with greens and fried quail and like a, like a couple, like a honey, because they did like a, not a waffle, but it was sort of a take on fried chicken and waffles. And I got to say, I saw the corned Elkhart, uh, saw a post of it or something. I was like, nah, it's not going to work out. Really? <laughs> yeah, but it was great. You know what I did the other day? I brined, uh, hey, you were for dinner that night, weren't you? Mm-hmm. I brined uh, Moose Heart and just smoked it. How'd it go? Shit was good. <laughs> did you like it, Yanni? Yanni's keeping Yeah, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't like it? <laughs> I said it was good. Every time I try to do anything other than fry hard or slice it and throw it on the barbecue, I'm just not. Not into For it. me, it doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. So now, Ryan, what do you got to say for yourself? We got a, we got another man here. I was going to say, uh, you missed another meal. Callahan was there. Thursday night, we had a big, what we called tack barn dinner. Four of us cooking. Um, had some good stuff there. What did you guys do with that for food? Uh, we It was all wild game, hunter-gatherer stuff, four different courses. Cooked all camp cooked. So uh, Dutch oven, grill, over, we had uh, Hank Shaw did five antelope hind quarters over open flame, coals, hanging by a big tripod, killer good. That worked out good? Killer good, yeah, we had four dishes. I did elk loin, uh, Montana chickpeas, we had uh, Charles McGuinn did uh, Dutch oven lasagna, made his own cheeses, two different cheeses. Um, first time he'd ever done Dutch oven lasagna, nailed it, of course he's a... He's a stud of a chef. He didn't make those cheeses out of like uh, elk and deer milk, did he? We, <laughs> we uh, hey man, check it out. I, we met a guy, Giannis. We met a guy we, in Texas who one time, because um, you know the hide hunters, the buffalo hide hunters used to cut the mammaries open and, and suck the milk out of the mammaries when they were butchering animals. And we met a guy down in Texas. Remember that guy? Which, which one? The dude that hunts cranes with the zombie cranes. Oh, Mike, yeah. Nasty Panassi. Yeah. (laughs) He, he one time was skinning a doe and, and, uh, he didn't want to admit it. Like he told me the story and then later we were recording one of these and I said, Hey man, talk about when you were drinking that milk out of that deer you were cutting up. (laughs) Didn't want to talk about it. It was a private conversation that he wanted. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, we're hardcore man, but we're, we're we're not there yet. Yeah. So when the, the, the whole legs, how'd you, how did, did it get cooked into the bone? Or did you have to just keep cutting away and letting it cook more and keep cutting away and letting it cook? It was a challenge on that one because we're cooking in colder conditions than Hank usually cooks in, so it, it was a little slower for him. But didn't, it was rare on the bone. Um, but I'd say we got, the, we got it, oh, two-thirds was cooked just right with rare right at the bone. So we had variations of doneness through it. So it was like something for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and he made his own, had his own vinegar he had over the top of it, uh, brought sage, wild sage from California, cooked in there with it. It was fantastic. That's good. That's yeah. good. Where were the antelope from? Not from there. Montana. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Members donated them. Yeah, they're pretty short on antelope in California. Yeah, they're, they're running low over there. Yeah. Um, so, Ryan, explain your role at BHA. Chairman of the... Yeah, I'm uh, chairman of the board of directors now. So what do you do? Uh... Well, we're, uh, we try to provide some direction and try to bounce ideas off of each other and give land as marching orders and give the staff 
um, ideas on where we'd like to see the org go. And we've so the board is chief over land, or land is chief over the board. Honestly, it depends on the day and who you ask. Um, it's his birthday, so I guess we'll let him be boss today. Yeah. Lane, do me a favor, run through the buckets again. I know you did this before you're on with us, and we did, we spent like an hour on the buckets, but hit me hit me with the buckets, but hit me in like real shorthand. Yeah, yeah. So we've got three buckets. First one uh, would be. I thought it was five buckets. And we changed it because it was too much. Too many buckets. You still can only carry and two I, at a time. I got one in my mouth. I got one in my mouth, so that's good. Uh, no, we got three buckets. First one is access and opportunity. Well, I, I got to get back to why. How did you lose? Bu- okay, tell me the buckets and explain. Because I imagine you poured a bucket into another bucket. We did. Yeah, okay. And so, so give me I'll the three tell you buckets. where the, that bucket came from. So we have uh, access and opportunity is the first one. That was a regular bucket. Um, that's our public lands work. That's our access to public lands. That's our access to public waters. And then uh, the second bucket, which got a lot bigger, uh, is the backcountry kind of conservation. And so within that, you got special places, which used to be a standalone bucket, and then you have kind of larger, big scale. These are nesting pots. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. And, uh, then, and then after that, you have like larger things like the Clean Water Act, you know, that has implications for everybody. Um, that's a lot bigger than like special places. Yeah. And then our final one is Fair Chase. And that fair chase bucket, you know, that's where our drone kind of work comes in. That's where our high fence work is going to come in. Um, and kind of our Ill- illegal OHV use is under that bucket as well. Why do you think that people have been able to, well, I'm, I'm, I don't want to stack things on top of each other. Yeah. So I think you kind of explain where the buckets went. It's just like you're, but, but this is just the way you just think in your own mind, right? I mean, this is kind of a way you guys categorize. Yeah, and we want to make it simple for people to understand what we do, right? Yeah, no, and so when I'm into five buckets, people start going to sleep, right? And, and so the three buckets, and the, and the way I just explained them, I think it's pretty succinct. And so people can understand that right away. Yeah. You, are you familiar with the comedian Mitch Hedberg? I am not. Um, he died, but... I'm sorry he, to hear that. <laughs> probably the greatest American, one of the greatest American comedians ever. But he had a joke where he was um, talking about someone gave him... Uh, what's the drug you take when you have ADHD? Ritalin. Yeah, so he would take Ritalin, but he's not, but he doesn't suffer from the ailment. He would just take the solution. And he said that um, whenever someone someone told him something, he'd be like, there's got to be more to that story. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. So in that way, I like the five buckets, man, because I like a long story. But um, why do you think, I want to talk about the drone situation, because you you addressed that last night at the dinner. Oh, also, did... um, who wound up buying the float trip? The float trip with you was it your mom? <laughs> uh, no, um, I don't make my mom pay to go hang out with me. She did bid him up though. <laughs> um, no, she wants to get you alone on a boat and criticize you. No, it was actually it was a friend of mine who, after he bought it, as I'm hugging him, he told he whispered to me, he said, "I'm gonna work the shit out of you." <laughs> And so then I told him where I wanted to go, and there's a portage, and he said he's not going to do the portage, and so that means that uh, I'll be working, and I think we'll be going by holes, and then just he will say, like, make me get out of the boat and, like, drag it back up the river or row it back up the river. So Now, he told me last night he's going to put, like, 40 flies in the willows. (laughs) (laughs) It might be an expensive trip. So, yeah, you talked about the drone issue. 13 states have banned drones. Yes. Now, why are people, why do you think people are able to coalesce around drones when they'd be reluctant to coalesce around other uh, technologies being eliminated from the hunting toolkit? Is it because it's totally new? It's definitely part of it. Yeah. 
I think, you know, I mean, there's no get, traditional use. Once right. you get something established, you know, like when you got a lot of money at stake, but then you have a lot of people that have already, you know, like that's, that's the way they do business. Right. And so yeah. on the drone thing, we got out in front of that and, um, you know, there isn't like a, a drone hunting association, right? Like, you know I mean? The drone owners, yeah, the drone lobby. There's a drone lobby, but... but that's more for... That's, yeah, I think that's, that's Amazon.com. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so, but, you know, we wanted to get in front of it, you know, so there's things like live action cameras on trees, right? And we have their band here in Montana, but in a lot of states, that's okay. And like, to me, that's kind of the same thing. And, you know, that's already been established. And so that's a lot harder to put that back in the box, right? Yeah. And, and so um, with the drone stuff, yeah, people, I mean, I think... People, when they hear about that, they just can't believe that people were starting to do that, right? Yeah. So we were in a good place when we did that. I think if, I don't know how many years you'd have to go back, but if you went back to the advent of trail cameras, like right now, if you said, like in a national sense, no trail cameras, people would have a shit fit. Oh, yeah. I mean, like there's in Arizona, I mean, from Arizona, Wisconsin. I mean, there's just places where, you know, here is weird when they did it that you could, you had to pull them when season started. Right. Which, I mean, that's probably really hard to regulate. Yeah. Uh, but, well, yeah. no, if you see one, you see one. True. But and I think that's the thing with, the, with drones, too, right? Like, we, you know, there's all these laws about flying airplanes, you know, and, and, and what you can hunt within, like, scouting on an airplane. Yeah. So I think it's 24 hours. And so we, we thought about doing that with drones, but drones are so much uh, less invasive than an airplane. I mean, you can hear an airplane, in, you know, when you're in the woods from a long ways away. Yeah. Right? For a drone, you got to be pretty close to it. And so yeah. um, that's why we didn't do the 24-hour rule there. We banned them for the entire season. So some guys, you know, if, if a law enforcement officer sees a guy with a drone during hunting season, like, that's a pretty easy way to do it rather than the 24. Yeah, like in Alaska, you got, you know, there's, there's a lot of hunts you can people don't a lot of people don't realize this. there's a lot of hunts you can fly and hunt on the same day you know for black tail deer and caribou and stuff there's a, some, some hunts you can some hunts you cannot but now you can't like if you fly a drone you don't hunt that season right yeah just that's it that's it which is a little bit surprising i mean i'm glad i like to see it i think everybody likes to see it but again i think it's because it hadn't been in my mind it just hadn't become entrenched totally like it hadn't become like a traditional use issue totally and traditions happen real quick <laughs> they do. You know. They do. And I think a lot of those traditions, though, they come with money, too, right? Yeah. I mean, you think you just talked about trail cameras. I mean, think about the, I, mean, I don't know what the dollar figure is, but it's got to be in the high millions, right? I mean, that's an industry now that would be taken away. And so it would be people that would fight it, but it would be even more, I think, the people that are making those things. Yeah. Another thing that's been funny to watch is two-way communications. Mm-hmm. Um, I hunted with some friends of mine in Wisconsin. They, they spend 75% of their time texting and 25% of their time looking for deer. <laughs> How's that work out for them? <laughs> well, they just text, <laughs> you know? And in here in Montana, at first, two-way communications, I remember years ago, for one year, you couldn't use them, and people were pissed. Right. Because people were like, hey, man, I'm out with my kids. Sure, it's safety. I want to know what's going on. I'm, I hunt with my dad. He's elderly. Sure. I need to know what's happening with him. And so then they clarified the language that you can't use it to assist. The same thing in Alaska. Right. You can't use it so you can have it. You can't use it to assist in the taking a game, which I thought wound up being a pretty reasonable, um, I, I thought it wound up being a pretty reasonable compromise. But I know guys, you know, guys, especially it seems like down in the Southwest, if they can't have two-way radios, they ain't going hunting. You know, they get a guy on every point, find an animal, nine guys watching it, one guy going after it, and they're all on radios. Literally you, a goddamn SEAL team. What do you think of that? I don't know. I don't like I mean, personally, 
you know, you get into this thing all the time. I, I had this conversation. I, I, I did a, like a talk two nights ago in, in Michigan, and a guy asked me, like, what do you think of Baton? I'm like, I think if Baton's okay where you're at, great. Is it legal? You know, if it's illegal, I think you should probably stop doing it. Um, I grew up first, second, third, fourth, fifth deer I ever killed to kill over a pile of carrots. Uh, later, I got real curious about what deer are doing when they're not eating my carrots. Um, what I learned about deer from hunting over bait is that deer will like carrots. As you get more experience, I think you start wondering what they're doing when they're not eating them and where are they going and how would you find them if they're going about their natural rhythms. Sure. You know, and that's just where I'm, what I wound up being more interested in. Um, if I'm out hunting and I'm going after an animal, uh, it's very tempting to have information like, hey man, it left. Or a dude got up and bedded back down again 20 yards over by that rock. It's like tempting to have the information. But in the end, after the fact, um, I, think that it would, I think that it would diminish your memory of the animal. I think it would diminish your memory of the hunt. When uh, <clears throat> growing up in Montana, right, no uh, communicate, or what, I don't know how the law says it, but can't use communication to target animals or assist in the taking game. Yeah, they, they yeah. worded assist in the taking game. Um, First time ever hunting out of the state, I'm uh, guiding in uh, Idaho, and you just make some assumptions on some rules, and typically if you (laughs) assume on the side of the animal, you're going to be correct, Yeah. and we're riding up the trail, I'm just learning, the guide ahead of me, radio cracks, and it's like, hey, you guys just rode past a bull. Oh jump off these guys are just riding into camp you know the the clients and you know 10 minutes later dead bull really yep and i was oh my god i was just part of something highly illegal what am i gonna do what are you talking about that's how you kill elk up here like it's totally legal in idaho and i just couldn't totally takes away from it doesn't that prove that uh legality is only part of your ethics yeah well it's that's tricky as hell man because i brought this point a lot of time like guys in the southeast run deer with dogs that's traditional use they've done it for a long time if you decided you were going to you know people in michigan when they see a deer chasing a dog they shoot it or i'm saying when they see a dog chasing a deer you shoot at it so they would act like if if i said oh yeah i'm going up to michigan i'm gonna be running deer with my dogs that'd be illegal unethical all that kind of stuff in the southeast it's, it's a traditional use practice you know i think like i think that that's why the conversation about ethics gets so sticky because everyone's brought up in their own area and they're brought up to think that that what they do is the right way of going about things you know so it is it is tricky it's hard to draw definites but like your i do have some definites i think but i think that some stuff that i used to think is definite is tricky like your carrot deer though your ethics you thought more of that deer after you got strictly from past the legality it's legal for you to shoot over carrots but your ethics led you to something else your deer was worth more yeah 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 it did it it means more and in the end oddly they really started to curtail bait use in michigan shortly after i left because of disease transmission because you're bringing animals in rubbing noses and eating dirt that's infected with their own saliva and you know and you wind up having a much higher chance of disease transmission so they started regulating when you put it out how much you put it out and that was kind of on the tail end so then i think in that case yeah you do wind up in a in a thing where someone's like it's not healthy for the animals you know 
And another thing with technologies, man, uh, Elder Leopold had that line about, well, first, who, who is the guy not long ago wrote a piece like, let's stop talking about ethics and fair chase and let's talk about fair use or fair, um, fair portions. What was that? You know what I'm talking about? Mm, nope. He was just saying that we're using the wrong language. His point being, you have a well, right? Well, this is how Aldo Leopold put it. You got a well full of water. If you improve the pump and never improve the well, right, the well's not going to hold up as well as it did. So we're constantly improving the pump with technology, but are we improving the well? So I think an issue like that is if you go like, yes, baiting is in fact hazardous to our herd, depletes the well, improves the pump, and then through disease transmission, depletes the well, I think that then you get very firmly into an ethical issue. But if you've got a state that's got a lot of deer and they've found it over the course of many decades, they've been able to manage deer at a level they're comfortable with and people are baiting and, and it's how people do it, I have a hard time condemning it. The first two bears I ever ate were shot off bait from carp, an invasive species carp that we shot with our bows and froze them and used them to bait deer, to bait bears on my brother's drew bear tags in Michigan. Um, I have no, like, it's just not that exciting to me to think, I've, I've never shot a bear over bait. I've been invited to do it. I have no desire to do it. Just because it's just, bears eating bait isn't interesting. But I have a hard time, like, acting like, oh, I'm going to translate that into an ethical conundrum, you know? It's hard for people. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com. Or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. 
MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. What do you think about all that, man? You can't, you got to walk a fine line, dude, because you're like a, or I always like to clarify when I'm talking to land that I'm not, um, <laughs> speaking for us. I don't speak for land. <laughs> Which I'm glad, though you are much more eloquent than I am. Well, no, but I don't want people to confuse what I think with somehow because we're sitting here talking. I don't want people to confuse my personal opinions with your official policy. No, I mean, we don't have an official policy on baiting. Uh, I'm with you uh, personally. I have no interest in doing it. And, you know, and I think sometimes when I hear about baiting, it's especially around bears, it's like, we have better jelly donuts than they did, and that's why that bear came in. And that, to me, is not a skill that I want to acquire, is knowing which like donuts bring in the bears. That's yeah. just me, you know? And um, But when you hear, you know, like that, I think it was in Maine, right? I think they were talking about the banning of baiting yeah. in Maine. And they talk, I mean, they have a, a large population of black bears there, and they need to manage them. And when you talk to the fish and game, that was a tool that they were using. Well, there's no other way to hunt them. Right. Well, I shouldn't say there's no other way sure. to hunt them, but effectively, it's like when you ban dogs for lions, you're kind of banning lion hunting. Yes. Right? In the East, like for instance, where I grew up, or where we first familiarized ourselves with like any kind of hunting bears, I talk about my brothers drawing those bear tags, yeah. it's flat swamp. It's hemlock and just like alder swamp. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Right. There are bears around. I think in all my time running around there, I saw one bear across the road. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's got extremely high densities of bears. Sure. You just don't see them. Right. So to talk about, oh, we're going to ban baiting for bears in Michigan, it's like, okay, but let's just be honest what you're doing. You're banning banning bear hunting Mm -hmm. effectively. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, so I, I advocated against the Maine. I mean, not that I had any real say in it, but I advocated against the thing in Maine because I thought that that's what it was doing. I always think about what are the private conversations that people have, right? Some guy recently came to me and he's like, "Oh yeah, we got a, we're doing a thing where we want to ban trapping on public land in Montana." I'm like, 
that doesn't interest me. And they're like, oh yeah, but we got a lot of hunters that are with us. And I remember thinking like, what is the private conversation of the person? What, what are they, when they're sitting around drinking in their house with their buddies, what are they talking about? They're talking about how they want to like cut away. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think on the ban on public lands, I mean, we do not want to do things like that on a referendum. Like it's up to, in my opinion, it's up to the people who have the knowledge, our fish and game agencies on how like we regulate, you know, in our fish and game commissions. We start doing that through a ballot initiative and that's where we lose at some point, right? Yeah. And I think what you're talking about, this chipping away, the woman that runs uh, Trap Free Montana, um, I think she came actually to that uh, thing that we had at the uh, Roxy. And I don't know if you remember that um, when you were talking about, uh, I think you were doing a book signing or something there. And she came and she stood up and like she was talking about it and she was starting with, uh, with trapping, but really it was about hunting. And she was nervous about being in the woods during the fall, right? Yeah. And and to me, um, so it's just it's like for her, it's it's just the tip of the iceberg when you talk about trapping. There's there's more that she's going after. Yeah, I believe in incrementalism, man. Yeah. I think that everything moves in incrementalism. Death of a thousand cuts, right? Yeah. I mean, in a positive and in a negative way. Sure. I think that uh, the gay rights movement has been like an incre- a very incremental victory, a very incremental civil rights victory. Yes. You know. I think that like the civil rights movement, very incremental thing. I think that hunting is going the it can go in the opposite direction of being just a very incremental death. Sure, I, you know? I would say though, on like the trapping side in particular, I think sometimes trappers are their own worst enemy. And so like here yeah. in Montana, we've been trying to do you know get some mandatory trapper education. So like dudes setting too close to trails and just having the knowledge about it, right? Like yeah. if anybody can go out you know to Bob Boards tomorrow and buy a trap and you know and has no knowledge besides you know they just bought a trap. And so you know if bow hunting has mandatory education, why shouldn't trapping have that? You know, and and so they've they've. You know they've fought that every single time at the state legislature, and I think that means that they're on their, their own worst enemy, right? And so that gives people more credence to talk about this banning trapping on public land, which I totally agree, disagree with. We can see how that path gets there. I had a good friend here. You know, I think he said it well. He was at the BHA, and he said, "We'll continue to be able to do this as long as we behave in a way that's defensible to the public." Yeah. And so part of this, it's on our shoulders to do it, whether it's take bow hunter safety or hunter safety or maybe a trapping safety class. Definitely don't want to see it go away, but we have to behave in a way that's defensible to the public. When they came out with hunter safety, did people bitch about it? Uh, I, you're 41. I'm yeah, I don't. I don't think I. I, 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 I don't know that because yeah, it's yeah, always been, been part yeah, of it. Had it been contentious? Maybe. Yeah, probably because then it was like at that point, probably it was. I uh, think it was contentious when they came out with driver's ed. Yeah. Someone's probably like, what? You know. Callahan, talk about, you know, we were talking about someone saying that they were afraid to be out in the woods during hunting season. Talk about, if you're comfortable, what you were telling me about, remember we had a big email chain debating with you, me, and Doug Dern and my brother arguing about uh, hunter recruitment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you bringing up a point about the way skiing is perceived in your town and the way hunting is perceived in your town relative to hazardous risk. Do you remember this? Yes. Talk about that. Speak to that. Um, well, yeah, Ketchum, Idaho. Skiing is the end-all, be-all. It is why you're there. Everybody's a skier. That's how people love to identify themselves, even if it's not true. Um, it is the only... 
it is like the only like truly acceptable form of rec recreation I've I've found out there, and and uh, hunting hunters get a bad rap. We're in the paper there all the time. Not ever hunters speaking out because for some reason it doesn't make the paper, but people speaking out against hunters. And uh, I just started thinking of how interesting it was that um, skiing, you have, you know, multiple, just, I mean, just between Montana and Idaho and, and Wyoming, you have multiple deaths a year. And people are like, oh, it's just skiing. Yeah, but Some, also when dudes kick down an avalanche on other dudes, it's not, you're not even killing yourself. Exactly. Now imagine that happening in the hunting community. It would be, we'd be in a major, major fight. Well, yeah, if every year you had two or three uh, gunshot deaths during hunting season. Yeah, and, and some of these, you know, avalanche fatalities, they're people doing just minding their own business and uh, an avalanche comes down and wipes them out. That'd be like a hunter, you know, picking off a hiker. Yeah, but it's not perceived that way. Not perceived that way. And I just, why is that? It's all recreation. I'm afraid to be out in the woods. Yeah. Oh, come on. Um, thanks, Cal. No problem. All right, let's go back to bucket number one. Access. Yep. Yeah, give me the lowdown on that. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing under access and opportunity is this, uh, this whole public lands kind of divest your movement that uh, seems to be um, very prevalent right now. And, you know, those folks that, that want to steal our heritage and take it for their own, I think that is, like, that is the issue. We can't talk about any other things if we get that one wrong. Well, tell me this, because this, this I find is helpful. Put yourself in the place of a very smart person. <laughs> That's going to be hard. No, no. Hear me out. Try, try Lamb. Put yourself in the place of a very smart person who's explaining to me why we should divest federal lands. What would they tell me? Don't spin it. Uh, I think they would tell you that, uh, that local control is better. Because why, I say. I would then say why. Because it's their backyard and they know it's best uh, for that land. Okay. That's what, I think that's what they would say. I, I think definitely you would get, though... Um, I mean, I don't know anything in this movement that's not based on extractive re resources. And I think the core of it would be, and the argument would be, our communities exist because we can extract resources from these federal properties. The federal government is inefficient at allowing us to, restract, to extract resources from these properties in the way that we think we should extract prop, uh, resources. And we want to be able to more efficiently take the resources out to make more money on them. Because by proximity, by proximity, we have more of a right to that than other owners who are not living in close proximity. There's, I think there's two issues. They believe that proximity uh, allows them more rights to those resources, and they also believe that distance, meaning federal, federal lands managers who are distanced geographically from their lands, don't know best how to take which tree or which mine or which gas well or whatever it is. And so, um, yes, it's more theirs because they're closer to it, but also just generally speaking, 
federal government, you know, isn't perceived as the most efficient uh, extractor of those resources. And and the laws that uh, are adhered to by the feds, that have to be adhered to by the feds, tend to slow down um, those sorts of decisions with good reason, you know. Uh, um, I think federal the big land part of this problem complex. is that 60 character Twitter thing where it's like, well, who can manage it best? Somebody in DC or somebody locally? It's not. Yeah, you'd be like, not I'd like, have to know more. <laughs> yeah, it's not like the office there in DC flies somebody out for one day and says, hey, can we cut down this timber? Well, I don't know. Better fly back to DC and talk it over with the boys. Yeah. You know, there's regional offices everywhere. District offices, the close ones, yeah. It, I mean, it's it's crazy. They're, the people but making they're operating the under a mandate to do a lot more than make. They're they're operating under a mandate to do a lot more than make a, a temporary amount of money for a said individual. Well, that, I think you hit on it, and the one sixty characters that. We live in a bumper sticker world. You know, if you can't boil it down to something that can fit on a bumper sticker and piss somebody off, it's just not cool. And so these, these things that are complex, um, like federal lands management, it's a complex thing. You have to satisfy all these constituencies. Um, no, nobody's going to get their way 100%. Well, there are people now who, who want their way 100% and don't understand the complexities of it. My brother just made a bumper sticker that says, I heart gluten. He just feels bad for gluten. I, 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 I can totally see Matt doing that. But yeah, I think, yeah, there is, a, I don't know why, where did it come from, the reluctance to grapple with complex issues? We use, I mean, I really believe the internet and frankly, you know, the 24-hour news cycle plays into this. We used to sit around, frankly, people used to sit around with beers and coffee and do what we're doing. Now you get on your computer and send a flamer to somebody. You get on Facebook and piss somebody off. You, you know, you, there, there's no appreciation or there's insignificant appreciation for the complexities and, different, and other people's outlooks and working together. So now go back into yourselves now. You don't have to play the role of the really smart guy who wants, Thank to, goodness. Who wants to privatize federal lands or privatize public lands or whatever, or have, have un, uh, what's the word, unfettered? Who wants unfettered access? Yeah with no, what I would oftentimes see as unfettered access with no real eye toward long-term future. And you can kind of see that at play when you watch energy prices, when, when like mineral or energy prices go up, people get real interested in something, they go down, their interest seems to fade. And so you're like, so you were kind of looking at this as a very temporary thing. You know, it couldn't even hold up through a market cycle. Right. But go back to your regular self. That's, that's me, not land talking. And, and tell me, Sell me against divestiture of, of public lands. <clears throat> I think the, I mean, divestiture, I mean, this is like our... Divestiture. I always add a syllable for some reason. <laughs> I, I, this is what is uniquely American, right? I mean, it's what separates us from the entire world, that these lands belong to the people instead of the short-term use, that we have this conservation ethic, which is for future generations. And so it doesn't mean no use, doesn't mean no extractiveness, but it means it has to balance that for future generations and also other uses. And so, you know, you, you divest those <clears throat> either to the states or to individuals, and we lose that intrinsic value that I think is uh, the main piece of fabric that weaves all across this country that is truly American. And, and you know, the, the idea that uh, the states can, you know, manage this better 
there's been no study that's been done that says that's the truth. And, you know, Utah came close, and that was when oil, you know, was at a real, real high, high level. It was like 100, over $100 a barrel. And then it dropped out, just like you just talked about, right? And so now all those plans that they had, even though they were short-term extraction, like go crazy and do it, those don't even pencil out now. And so they cannot manage those lands. And so they'd have a couple of different options. You know, you, you either extract that very quickly and get a little short-time money, uh, or um, you raise taxes. When was the last time you heard a politician get away with raising taxes? Like that's going to be their platform. Nobody does that, right? Yeah. And or at the very end of that is they sell it. And I think, you know, Ryan is right that there's 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 the industry that is behind this, the extractive industry. I think that's very real. But there's also folks, I mean, look at the Wilkes brothers and what they've done in Montana here in the last 10 years. They're now the number one landowner here in Montana. They're trying to, um, you know, take a public elk herd in the Durfee Hills for their own. They're salivating watching this all happen and ready to buy all their bits, bits and pieces of America. And, you know, they're billionaires and they got the money. And it's not just them that I'm worrying about. It's the, you know, foreign entities like the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese are buying places all over the world right now. And if they owned our public lands and our clean water, think about how crazy that would be. Oh, they do a great job environmentally in their own country. <laughs> right. You know, I would say those beautiful too, clouds, I, I mean, those beautiful clouds they made over all their cities. It is nice. You know, uh, some folks on the side of this argument, the pro side of divestiture. Sorry, that's like uh, adding a syllable there, but um, you know, they believe in American exceptionalism. They often tout American exceptionalism on all sorts of foreign policy issues and governmental issues and constitutional issues. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, one of the top two after our form of government. Uh, examples of American exceptionalism is what we have in our public lands. I don't think you can be a fan of American exceptionalism and then want to ruin the number two example, in my opinion, of what American exceptionalism is. We have this thing that every citizen in the United States has deed, as you said last night, has deed to these millions of acres. There's no other group of people on the planet that's ever tried this. Yeah. That was one of the frustrating things with me about the wildlife refuge takeover in Oregon is the way it draped itself in the American flag in, in a very literal way. I mean, literally like draping itself in the American flag. I remember looking at it and thinking, but what aspect of America are you talking about? It's not the rule of law, not the part of America where we don't tolerate pointing weapons at peace officers and civil servants. Not the part of America where we don't terrorize the populace. Like, what aspect of America do you mean? You know, it was just very puzzling to me to see, like, what part of America were you promoting? You know? Yeah, what do you think would have happened? I felt like if, an ISIS flag would maybe be, be more. Well, but what, with those guys, what do you think would have happened if uh, they were of a different religion and they occupied a federal facility in some city with... Uh, you know, armed and threatening federal officers. You think we'd have let that go on no. 40, 50, 60 days? I think they would have got dusted up pretty quick. It was, yeah, it was positive. Like, I just don't understand that interpretation of America that America is, that doesn't admire rule of law. I think one of the things that makes us great is like, we don't, in most cases, we don't need vigilantism because we have a way to redress the government. You know, I'm actually doing it right now. I'm in the appeals process fighting the federal government on something. I'm not in trouble. You're a rabble rouser. Yeah, me and Yanni. 
Well, that's what, you know, you look at those guys. Don't get me involved. <laughs> they say they're, you know, they're, they say they're, uh, they want to adhere to the Constitution, but I mean, to your point, Steve, for them to believe in what they do, they have to first twist the hell out of the Constitution so that they can read it upside down or sideways in a way that nobody else reads it, including every constitutional attorney that's ever looked at it. So once you twist it, then you can find this odd way to defend it and wrap yourself in a flag that we don't recognize. Yeah. Did you guys see the uh, German gal that came by the food contest yesterday? Don't think no, so. No. It was amazing. She'd exchange, exchange student or something. Well, I don't want to talk to Mal here thing because it just pissed me off too much. Home but the, uh, she's like, what are you guys doing? Is this a festival? I said, well, it's a public lands thing. She said, well, what are public lands? The stuff you don't have. Yeah. It was amazing. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, I'm representing the United States versus Germany. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was like, I better get this right. Uh, all I, all I could think about was an um, uh, article I'd recently read about, you know, going out and meeting your gamekeeper. Yeah, yeah. And paying your trespass fee because everything's private. And she's like, so you want to take those private lands? Like, no, they're, they're public. You can use them. Do you pay taxes here? She's like, no. I pay taxes in Germany. I said, oh, well, you can still use these lands. And it was a very cool. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know you were engaged in diplomacy last night. <laughs> it's a big day. The ambassador. Um, I hear a lot of times people when they're having this discussion, like someone mentioned this recently, how the uh, tracing back public lands use back to pioneer days. Um, how, and I've done it too, to say like, oh, you think of a guy like Daniel Boone, you know, he came from, British or you know English descent, and in England, if you get caught on someone's private land, you know they would set traps for you and poison you and shoot you, and you could be hung for it to be hunting on someone else's property. Um, but when those guys came here, they were trespassing in many respects. Like Daniel Boone was often hunting on ground claimed by the British, and a, an enormous amount of friction there claimed by indigenous groups, you know? It was a muddy picture back then. I think the, only, the idea of like sort of what we're talking about when we talk about uh, wildlife and the public trust and public trust lands is something that is not new, but very much, you know, a 19th and 20th century creation. It's an experiment, right? I mean, it's, it's such a new thing. Um, that, that we don't know, I don't think we totally know the value of it yet, right? I mean, I think when you were talking last night, um, you know, this, just having it there has this intrinsic value. And I don't think we've fully realized what that is yet because it's such a, I mean, the, the history in this country is so young, and in particular the public lands history is so young that I don't think we uh, understand the breadth of what that means to us yet. No, it comes gradually because now we've all settled in. I mean, both sides of the aisle have settled in that Roosevelt was a, was a you know, had incredible foresight and was a great hero. He had to do, he had to twist a lot of arms and do a lot of shady dealings to create the national force that he created. Yeah, the midnight force. Yeah, so he was really pissing people off. Now we're like, man, what a visionary. I mean, William Clark, you know, one of the Copper Kings was senator 
at that time in Montana when he set it aside. I mean, this is a guy that was handing out $100 bills on the Senate floor to get votes. He became a senator in Montana, and he fought this because they wanted to do nothing but rape and pillage. Yeah. And so it's not like, you know, everybody, you know, Roosevelt came up with this idea, and they're like, oh, that's awesome, good idea. No, people now, it's like, what a, you know, what a tremendous, you look at, like, Yosemite, it's now hit where we widely regard it as being a great move. Yellowstone, at the time, someone could have made a pretty good argument that you could draw a lot of money, and you still could draw a lot of money out of Yellowstone, but it's become in our minds now, it's like, wow, we're they visionaries. They did make was, the argument. Yeah, it was contentious at the time. I just don't think we're done having that conversation, and I think things are going to keep moving into the realm of, of, wow, I can't believe those guys had the foresight to have this stuff. No one else has it. I mean, these, these, these places that are still like they were thousands of years ago are going to become much more valuable as this country develops. Right? No, yeah, as I mean, the world. Yeah, as the world goes to shit, we're going to be more and more like, I can't believe those dudes have that. Exactly. Well, think about how it's similar to our government. I mean, it, uh, lots of mistakes were made. We learned, we learned from European mistakes. We learned from all sorts of mistakes and, what, and mistakes we made as a, as a populace, and we formed our government, a constitution, a government owned by the people. Same thing happened with, with land. I mean, we made all sorts of mistakes. We'd had, we've done horrible things to indigenous peoples. We've did the, but we learned through trial and error, and we came up with a land system very similar to government. It's owned by the people. These are two very similar things, our constitutional system of government and our public property, same, same sort of thing. Most egalitarian thing on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. I think one of the best arguments for public lands in, in wild places is that we don't want to have people like, like um, British people who do nature shows because they don't have any trees and any woods left. And then you look like, like Bear Grylls. He's always like, holy shit, I'm in the woods. I got to get out of here quick before something bad happens. You know, and um, yeah, I think that it's like part of the American tradition to find comfort in wild places instead of having it be like this adversarial relationship. You know, that's why I think about it just to eliminate. Yeah, just because I hate those kind of nature shows. Oh my God, it's an animal! Run! Speaking of big wild places, we talked with the other day when we talked to Dan. He was talking about the is it the American Prairie? project yeah are you guys in, is bha involved in that at all or can you speak to that yeah you're gonna keep twisting their arms make sure it stays uh, open for for yeah i mean so the, i mean what they're doing there is quite amazing right and for those that don't know about this it's a uh, central montana they're trying to tie into the charles m national wildlife refuge and the missouri breaks national monument uh cmr is about 1.1 million acres i think they're looking at trying to pull together um property at about three million acres and you know it's it's native but prairie willing selling willing exactly. seller william buyer. totally yeah. exactly There's, private market yeah, capitalist buy system. Land when it's up for sale and nobody's forcing anybody to do anything and so i think the american prairie uh, foundation has a, a really long-term look at this and and so I, I think they're into almost a half a million acres that they have that is deeded plus like leased land on on uh on blm land and so their idea is to try to like be able to bring all this together again. Well, they're able to buy, they do grazing, they like get grazing leases? They get grazing leases and they, they're turning those over so that they can have those used for bison. Mm -hmm. And you know, and they get, they're getting past the whole brucellosis issue, which I think is pretty hilarious because you know, elk in this state carry more brucellosis than bison, but they're such an established species that we hunt and that everybody loves that nobody's gonna touch them. But with a bison, oh man, he might have brucellosis. And so we can't have any bison from, you know, Yellowstone that are up here in the APR or in this, this region. So what they're doing is they're taking those bison from Elk Island 
that have never ever, you know, up in uh, Alaska, that have never been exposed to brucellosis. And so that takes that argument away really quickly. Yeah. And so now they don't have that argument. Um, it's, it's more about competition for grass, which I think it's always been about. And so. No, I don't, I don't think that's even a debatable point. What's I mean, that? People will debate it all day long, but I don't think the argument, I don't think it's about brucellosis. Well, as soon as that bison eats uh, elk placenta, they could get brucellosis. <laughs> bison do love elk placenta, don't they? Do they? they I bet they do. No, I don't think so. Calories are in. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that argument, it doesn't hold water. It's just one of those like red herrings, right? Yeah, that's, no, that's easily, they, like, easily yeah. to talk to people about, and it's scary. Um, but again, I mean, the, the vector there that I think they should be more worried about is elk. And, you know, that's never going to, like, nobody's ever going to take that on. I don't think anyone should be worried about I mean, I, I, mean, I, I that they should be maybe using as their argument, not yeah. that they should be worried about. Yeah, I, I like, and I've written about that group, and I haven't really talked to anyone with that organization, but am I clear that they do, that, that, that they enroll lands in block management yep. for public access? Yeah, I mean, I, I shot, uh, um, I shot sharp tails on their, on their property this year. And uh, yeah, they're, I mean, they're being very good stewards. Now I would love for them, instead of doing block management, to kind of get into like a long-term kind of easement, like an access easement. Yeah. Because I think everybody's fear is, is okay, right now you're doing that so all these hunters are happy. But then they're going to pull the you know the the rug out at some point, and so you know if they truly um, are committed to access, which I think that they are, they should think about doing these long term kind of like access easements, and so that that gives a lot more certainty to this whole situation. And you know, I mean, yeah, I'd get behind I'd get behind their mission a lot more if I didn't have if I didn't have similar suspicions about it. Yeah, and that's I mean, and, and hunters I think in general are suspicious, kind of have a suspicious nature, right? And yeah, because every guy that grew up in the outdoors has to look at a lot of places he used to be able to hang out, or that used to be pretty good, and now they're not so good, yep. or that they can't hang out anymore, or they're locked up, or they're leased, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. That said, though, I mean, there's phenomenal upland bird hunting down there. Uh, the waterfowl hunting is very short, but you know, there's not much water down there, and so before it freezes, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it just gets good, and then it gets over. Yep, and I, I mean. Can you imagine? I mean, you've, you've I've never hunted bison, um, but like to be able to hunt bison in that place, and you know the bison they had, I've, I've went out and watched them, and um, and I, I was ready to kind of you know them to be cows, you know, and like when they saw us, they'd come up and you know like you stick your hand out and they'd eat out of your hand or something. Take a selfie with them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's very dangerous in Yellowstone. Um, but when we saw them. I mean, they were wild animals. I oh, mean, yeah. As soon as we got out of the truck, they were running. And by the way, that was gorgeous to watch. You know, on the prairie, you know, a herd of about 150 bison running was just gorgeous. But I mean, there is an opportunity for a true hunt there. And you know, down in Yellowstone, coming out of there, I mean, again, I haven't hunted them, and I think that's that that has whole has all changed. But it's it's not quite a, as much of a hunt as this would be. No, I've been down watching that happen, um, and it's not. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, yeah, it, it, I would categorize more like in the harvest category. And I don't think anyone who draws that tag thinks of it much beyond that. And I've gone down there and, and observed people doing it. Um, when I drew a tag in 2004 on the Copper River area in Alaska, it's a very difficult hunt. My brother drew that tag last year and they were, they blew a number of stalks. I mean, those animals just, but they, you know, they've been there a long time and they've been hunting a long time and they've adapted to human pressure. And um, yeah, it becomes it becomes a very legitimate hunt, which I think is awesome. But I think the ones, yeah, I think the ones leaving the park have a hard time adjusting to it. Elk have over, you know, elk have been pursued for so long that they have a tendency to know 
sort of what the rules are where they happen to be hanging out. You know, an elk can be in the park and be cool, and he leaves the park, and he knows that it's a whole different game going on. I think it's going to take more time for those animals to figure it out. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, personally, you know, I've been an admirer of that animal since uh, – of, of buffalo since I found a skull – in the Madison mountains and, um, and studied up on them a lot. And I think that helping that species become, you know, we never, we, we almost have biological extinction. Um, now the term people use is ecological extinction where you know, we got a half million of the animals in North America. I think 94% are privately owned or basically manages as a livestock, you know? And, um, I think that it'd be one of those things hundred years from now, if we were to able to have some large publicly owned herds that Americans could interact with, um, I think it'd be one of those things where it became like people would be surprised to hear that there were uh, adversaries to that plan. It'd become the future. It'd become the future yell. Some people are like, really? People didn't want this to happen? But yeah, you know, it's, they didn't. But Think about this. I mean, as hunters, we've played a vital role in establishing just about every game species back to wild huntable populations in North America, we're only one short. Yeah. The only one we haven't accomplished yet, as Pazowitz would say, is bison. And I know there can be opposition to these things sometime, but imagine a small town in eastern Montana near the only free-roaming bison herd, huntable bison herd in the lower 48 reestablished. Do you know how many hunters and sightseers and wildlife watchers and everything would flood to that town every year? It'd be like a tourist trap on the edge of Grand Canyon. You guys familiar with the writer um, uh, Bill Kittredge from longtime Missoula resident, brought up in Oregon. But he has a book called Hole in the Sky, and, and it's, it's sort of about issues, land management issues, and environmental issues. And he, he was talking about an old version of this called Buffalo Commons. You know, it's an idea that keeps coming up, but he, in the end of his book, he says, um, go to Jordan, Montana and talk about Buffalo Commons is a very good way to get your ass kicked. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, like, it's a contentious issue. I, I totally understand it, man. I could put on like a different costume and go argue and probably somewhat effectively argue against it. It's not that I don't see where people are coming from. Yeah, I, I understand both sides of it very well. If you go like, oh yeah, your, your great-grandparents and your grandparents fought very hard and suffered all kinds of economic calamities and gave their hearts and souls to this idea of settling the land, tilling the land, making the desert bloom. And now we want to go and say, oh, yeah, yep, but we're going in a different direction now as a society is a hurtful thing to hear. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one of the toughest places in the world to make a living. You know, I mean, as a rancher, I mean, it's, it's one of the toughest places in the entire world. And so, you know, as that population was established um, and, and folks came out to, to uh, prospect and, and, you know, and, and set up their kind of own flag on a piece of ground, like that population has been dwindling since those people came out there, yeah. right? And, and, and the, but they're tough. I mean, they're tough and they're some of the greatest people in the world. And you can see how they've been watching kind of their population shrink. You know, I'm in Missoula where it's all prosperous, you know, and everything's on the up. Their whole generations where it's been on the down. But they're so tough and they're hanging on to it. And, and it's, and, I mean, 
I respect that in a lot of ways, and and so I, I mean I, I definitely see where they're coming from, and, and it's a different you know way of, for them to think, and you know I think it you can almost have both in a lot of ways too, right? I mean this big scary thing about the American Prairie Foundation, it's all willing sellers and willing buyers, right? Yeah. And so you can still have cattle next to bison, and this whole Bruce Losis issue is out the door, right? And so I mean you, I mean you could definitely do it. Um, but you know that that population has been dwindling for a long time, and, and it's because it's a hard place to make a living. Yeah. In order, because because these issues are so complicated, it's it's helpful, I think, to try to find some kind of shorthand things. And a, a thing I often come back to, where I'm when I'm trying to find clarity on an issue, I often think like, like what are the lines? What what are my personal lines? I tend to always look at an issue, and I I tend to come from the angle of what's best for habitat and wildlife. Because everything's so complicated, right? And every issue has so many things, but that's sort of what I've decided are like my primary interest. What I think is best for the country, the best for future generations, is to advocate on the behalf of the thing that is, is most likely to suffer. And I think that wildlife and habitat, as we go forward, um, are gonna be the things that have the greatest potential for loss. I don't worry about running out of roads. I think if we had a group, if we had a meeting this weekend and it was a group advocating on not running out of roads, I don't know how many people would show up for it and donate money. It's just, I don't think we're going to run out of roads. I don't think we're going to run out of concrete, you know, yep. like the save the pavement foundation. Um, You're making it's my not going to inspire. Yeah. I think the people, yeah, it's just like there's some stuff that if you look at what's happening around the world, it's just there's things that are getting lost at a rapid rate and we're in a good position to, to find a way to coexist in an economic, you know, in an economically feasible way to have prosperity and coexist with wildlife in a way that hasn't been done. Well, I think, you know, using your... Um, Pavement Association of America or whatever, you know, it would be that advocacy group is that on the flip side of that is that you can, you can continue to make roads. Like you said, we're not worried about running out of roads because we can continue to make and make and make more roads. We're not making any more of this back country, right? We're not making any more of this pristine wildlife, fish and wildlife habitat. And so that's why I think it's, it's and that's like that second bucket, right? Is this, is it protecting special places? And there's, since we're not making any more of it, let's make sure that we keep that stuff the way it is right now. Yeah. You never go to your friends, he just bought some property, and he's like, yeah, and I'm going to put some wilderness in over here. <laughs> and my hot tub's going over here. <laughs> right? Like, you know, I mean, I, I think another good example is, you know, is wetlands. You know, all these wetlands that are drained, um, and then people try to make them again. We can't even come close to making them again, you know? I mean, you can kind of have a semblance of a little bit of water in there, but the complexity of those wetlands and all the insects and the, and the plant community that's in there, you cannot replicate it, you know? I mean, as smart as we are, as much as I, you know, love our uh, ingenuity, we haven't figured that out and we never will because that happened over, you know, eons yeah. and how that was developed. You there's know a I mean? funny, there's that funny case study in Phoenix. They made an artificial wetlands, but it got destroyed by beavers. <laughs> For real. <laughs> All right. What time, is unlimited? what time is the end? We're an hour in, so probably be good to take some oh. questions. Oh, yeah, we're going to do questions. Yeah, Lane, lead the question thing. Or Ryan. 
All right. Is there any uh, questions from the crowd? And I think we'll have to use this other microphone. Is there any questions from the crowd? We'll just restate the question. Oh, we can do that. That's good. Any questions? I didn't make that. I didn't, I didn't invent that. <laughs> yeah. He's done this before. Yeah. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20-plus years. 
Decked is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Josh Coons. So, have you guys ever thought about it like this? With, you know, we're in a campaign here. Do any of the candidates out there, they talk about those public lands, can they not look at Mount Rushmore, where Theodore Roosevelt's one of the four presidents selected on Mount Rushmore, and then they're up there directly saying, I want to do something completely opposed to one of his most powerful legacies? How do people not be like, oh, yeah. So-and-so, I'm sure he's probably going to be on Mount Rushmore. Like they'll add a fifth face because he's in direct opposition to, like, Theodore Roosevelt. No, I think they'll have to chisel down Roosevelt and put up, because you're not going to put him next to the guy. You have to chisel him down and put up a new face. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I'll hit this without... Tangentially, I'll hit it. So the question is basically, I think, um, how can politicians now claim to be claim to carry the mantle of Roosevelt and be anti-everything Roosevelt ever did. Um, I would say that's kind of what Josh is asking. I think our problem as sportsmen and as advocates for Habitat is that through whatever political um, nefariousness has gone on, we've allowed our issue to become one of these partisan footballs where it can only be kicked around on one side of the island, not the other. And, um, you know, if you go back 15 years, 20 years, conservation, lands management, environmental policy. These were debated, but they weren't partisan issues. Nobody was against clean water 15 years ago. Nobody was against public land. You couldn't speak. I mean, could you imagine 15 years ago presidential candidates loudly advocating in the Western United States to divest ourselves of federal land? They'd have been run out on a rail, tarred and feathered. It, it wasn't never the happen. EPA Nixon? It, EPA is a Nixon policy. Um, so I think what we have to do and what I think groups like BHA do we're pulling this back to the center where it's no longer a partisan thing. Democrats are for it. Republicans are for it. And it's because it's a good idea. And I, I believe that most of these people in their heart, they know it's a good idea, but they're in the business of playing political advantage. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about playing political advantage and getting reelected and getting big PAC contributions. We got to get it back to where it's doing the right thing. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're not one side or the other. We're pulling it back to the middle so everybody's for it. Right up front. I got one for you. A little bit of devil's advocacy here. These are not necessarily my opinions, but some of the folks who are less interested in the backcountry and more interested in the extraction might take the argument back and say, well, you know, what if America was never populated? Would you want to protect the whole thing? Would you never want to let anybody live here? And do you miss the animals that were extincted in the Pleistocene? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if I could get a mammoth tag tomorrow, I'm all over it. <laughs> yeah, so, so... No doubt Steve does. However, when you restrict the march of industrialization somewhat, does that not hold back people who are not as wealthy as we are? And I say everybody in this room is very wealthy to even be here. Anybody who goes to the backcountry to hunt, regardless of what you consider your economic status, is very wealthy. And the argument that's given many times is that when you want to suppress carbon emissions, when you want to preserve too much background and so on, it's a bunch of rich guys, whether you feel like you're the rich guys who hold the land for everybody. It's a bunch of rich guys trying to hold back other people and industrialization. And so that's one of the arguments you hear, and I haven't heard you address that. It's not my application, but what do you say about it? Land restated. So I think the question that like, the restated for me is, 
is that there's this, uh, this rich elite they're trying to protect us from ourselves. Is that fair? And like, and 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 trying to and, and say that these 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 lands are only they're only they want to be set aside for the rich elite and not used by anybody else. Is that fair? For a very few number of people. If you look at how many people really go into the backcountry, how many sure. of us are hunters who put the stuff on our back, and we want the government to preserve this for us, and not let other people maybe have their raised standard of living, their better better medical care, and so on. The vast majority of people do not necessarily make a direct benefit in their life. So that direct benefit, so you're, so I think you're real, because, because I'm, what's probably going to happen is no one's going to hear that. Okay. And we're going to have to like, so I'm trying to find a way. Yeah, that, that's great. But everyone else that has a question it has to be like a tight, clean question, but not that that's not tight and clean, but it's just going to be hard to follow. So it, it, a, a gentleman asked a two prong question, just devil's advocate. He's stating people who are into uh, saving animals, preserving wild places. If they went back in time, would they have said no one can come into America because it's all wilderness and we don't want to lose any wilderness? And if you want to save buffalo, does that mean we should save the short-faced bear and the woolly mammoth? Um, let's talk about that part first. It's like, I don't know. If people from outer space came and lived here, would they be covered under civil rights protections? I just don't know. It, it's so... Um, it's just something that it's a fun thing to juggle mentally. I don't know how it really, um, I don't know how it really helps us to ask that question because it's the kind of thing where you go to someone and they say, I believe in clean water. And then they go, oh yeah, but you use dish detergent. You're a hypocrite. So nothing you say matters. Um, I can't speak to it on a very personal level. I wish woolly mammoths hadn't gone extinct. I have a woolly mammoth tooth. I wish the whole thing was still there with its tooth in it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just like it's too, it's too revisionist for me to even grapple with. And I'm, I just sort of tend to look at it like, where are we now? What's going on in the world? I think that whatever definition we were to arrive at and how we define wilderness, how we define wild places, in my mind, um, if we got a giant panel of interested stakeholders together and came up with a working version of what is a wild place and we agreed on that nationally and then we said, do we want more of this stuff or less of it? However we define it, I would say I'd like to have a little more. The second part of the question is, isn't this all just a bunch of rich recreationalists trying to get the government to curtail people's ability to make a living so that we have a fun playground? It's a great question. Um, that one I think is worth wrestling with. I think that one of the big things about wildlands advocacy and wildlife advocacy is we don't really know what we have yet and that there are a lot of activities that can occur on it that will not diminish it, including some extraction, extractive industries, including very light footprint things. Um, I don't look at wilderness as being defined by people can't go there. Hell's, you have the Hell's Canyon wilderness. It has a wonderful avenue through it in the form of the Snake River. It's very accessible. People can go and experience that level of wilderness. I think there are many cases where people can. I just don't think that it has minute to minute be able to justify its existence based on what's happening there right now. I'll say this too. I think a lot of, um, a lot of the beauty of public lands is, is an aspirational American kind of thing. 
I don't get to Alaska near as much as I'd like. I wish I was up there, you know, every other week. Even if I got there only one time in my life, oh hell, even if I never got there, the aspirational nature of it being there, me dreaming about it, is worth something to me. A single mom in Chicago, she may never get to Glacier Park, she may never get to the Badger Two Med or Flathead National Forest, but it's an aspirational thing. She can go, you can dream about it. That aspiration that and that sort of aspirational stuff has driven Americans for, you know, over two centuries. And if you remove the, even the ability to do it, the aspiration goes with it, it's gone. So just because I would say to, to a single mom who might say that, it's not just for, yeah, we're using it a lot. Maybe we use it more than everybody else, but it's there for everybody to use if you want to. You can aspire to do it because it's there. There's some inspirational, soulful thing of it just existing so you can do it, you can dream about it. But if someone came to me and said, I'm, I'm gonna make a, if someone came to me like, like uh, God came down and said to me, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm either going to destroy the boundary waters or you and any child you ever have and any children that ever come from any children you will ever have can't go there. I would say we'll step back. So I don't think that it's always a highly personal thing. Do I like to go there? Yeah. Does me going into these places affect them in a long-term negative way? No. If I had to decide between my access and its existence, what would I go with? I would go with its, ex its existence. There are many places I will never go. I just probably won't get to all of them. Does that mean I have antipathy toward their well-being? I think it goes beyond the personal. Well, I want to, I'm, I'm going to address, like give Ben an answer for somebody that might, you know, might ask him this. Um, it's now being presented as this, I think the genesis of the question is that, well, you are an assumption based on it is you're sacrificing a bunch of other jobs and economic opportunity because you guys want to hunt there. You're making the rest of the country suffer economically because you guys want to protect your elk hunting spot. I say no. What about the elk hunting jobs, the guides, the outfitters, the restaurants, the towns? What about these, what about these vibrant communities Missoula, Montana, Bozeman, they're based largely on outdoor recreation. There are jobs associated with the wilderness. It's not just all or nothing. There's other kinds of clean jobs. I mean, I work in an industry. We, we're all here because of it. Yeah, it's not tied to a volatile market. Right. Well, we wouldn't be in the fight that we're in if these uh, single moms in Chicago, to stick with that example, they may see these places as aspirational, and, and I hope they do, but they will not fight at fraction as hard as we do without being there for themselves and and seeing what it really is and and i think those are the people they're going oh national forest i don't even know what that is that's on the other side of the country you know they're yeah they no i understand appreciate I recently had a conversation. We've been working on a documentary project and as part of it i interviewed at length uh animal ethicist. He's a, he's a professor. He teaches animal ethics. He's an animal rights advocate, um, activist. And we were having a conversation about how he's saying he was, I was asking him like, let's say you're a really smart hunter. Tell me what you think a really smart hunter would tell me to justify his existence. Just same way I did the land earlier. And he, he talked about, oh, you would tell me about all the money you guys spend on wildlife habitat and wetlands. We kind of were honing on the duck idea and talking about Ducks Unlimited. He's like, that you tell me that you spent all that, but I would just say you're just doing that because you want to shoot it, right? And I was describing to him after this, I was describing to him, you know, I've, what happens when you go to a Ducks Unlimited banquet 
and people who hunt maybe a day a year go and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars and give money to an organization that is just going to turn around and buy wetlands and open it up to the public. And he's going, oh, yeah, but it's too, yeah, but they only, are, they only do that because they want to kill ducks. I'm like, man, you know what? I don't care what they're doing it for. If it takes some level of exposure to wild places to turn you into an advocate of wild places, does that then make it a negative because you have this ulterior motive? I'm like, no, I know about advocating for it because I've experienced it. How can you expect that? How can you expect it to? How can you be suspicious of a person who advocates on something, but you're suspicious of them because they like it too? Who doesn't do that? I mean, who advocates on shit they don't like? So it's just it's like the weirdest roundabout argument to me. Like, oh yeah, you just like you just want to save it because you like it. Oh, you caught me, red-handed. Yeah, I do love it a whole bunch. You know, I mean, the way I would answer that question when somebody says that you're just setting it aside um, uh, for this elite kind of hunting preserve or whatever, I would ask them a question before I answered that, and I said, "Do you like clean water?" Seventy percent of our clean water starts on public lands. And so, do you want to make sure that you have clean water? That's the that's that's the question. I yeah, ask. and I, I would get into that too. Just like you don't understand ecologically, we don't understand as a people ecologically what these places mean entirely. I mean, you have this like interwoven connectivity. I recently heard this theory that was really interesting, where a guy was taking, he was saying, he was looking at the ocean as an organism that you would take an entire ocean and say it's an organism. The same way we have like our body, our cells, and we're comprised of organs and fluids, right? And electrical impulses that allow us to move. That he's like, imagine that we have the ocean and we treat the ocean as an organism. And the fish, all the fish are organs. Everything that happened there, it's like this living being. And think of it in that way. I think you could think of our ecology in that way. And we don't really know what we're gonna lose in other places by messing with these things. Look at what, when agricultural practices in Louisiana and Texas changed, and they started doing a lot more rice production. You created such an explosion of snow geese that it's denuding portions of the Arctic and damaging wildlife habitat in the Arctic. It's a long ways from Texas to the Arctic, but you create a wave that travels with activity. I don't think we really understand in a wildlife sense and in a clean air and clean water sense what would happen if we don't draw the line on wildlands protection. I don't think it's just going to be like you can just pluck it away and act like that's gone, but everything else stays the same. We're not done making mistakes. I mean, we've done ridiculous stuff and made ridiculous mistakes, and now we laugh about what our grandparents did. Our kids and our grandkids are going to be laughing about shit we're doing right now that we think is perfectly normal. They'll definitely be laughing at me. Let's just hope they're laughing. Ryan, you want to jump? In the back. Yeah, um, you touched briefly on Patrick's humid and Glacier and then also clean water. Could you talk maybe a little bit about what's still going on with the tribe? I know this gets messy. What's going on with the tribe up there and what was trying to be done? and where we're at with that? Yeah, so um, I don't remember the exact number of leases and I don't remember the, so back for- you want, yeah, rest, you want to restate that question? Uh, okay, so the question is what's going on with the Badger 2 medicine and I'll orient everybody about what that is. That's a area of the Rocky Mountain front, uh, essentially south of Glacier Park in Montana, all the way down to Shoto. 
Um, it's about a 35 mile by 35 mile area, um, sacred to the Blackfeet Indians, sacred to me personally. Um, in the 80s, there were oil leases let in the Badger Tumed, and it has long been argued by the Blackfeet tribe that improper uh, environmental review was followed before those oil leases were let because the tribe was not, giving, was not given um, proper oversight or proper comment period on it. That's been fought in the courts for quite some time. A company in Louisiana called Solonex has one of these leases, and Solonex stepped up a few years ago and decided, well, out of the several companies that own all, several of these tens of thousands of acres of leases, we're going to push it. We're going to drill there. We're going to call the bluff. We're going to see what happens. And so they started pushing to drill, exploring, sending, you know, applying for permits. They're saying we're going to drill. And so these leases had just been set there kind of simmering for some time in a place that's, you know, really, really is a sacred, beautiful place. Um, my kid's name Badge after the Badger 2 medicine. Um, well, just recently, the federal government sided with the Blackfeet tribe. We have one of those leases. The, the federal government said, you got to do whatever you got to do or get off the pot. And you either got to cancel the leases or you got to let them drill one or the other. You got to go and find the federal government, Sally Jewell, environmental secretary, or the interior secretary, canceled the lease. So we have one gone, but there's still a whole bunch of leases there. We think probably that the precedent is, is that that's going to be too difficult to drill there and we'll hope for some kind of system to retire or buy out or whatever the rest of the leases. We have a good precedent. It's on a good path, but the fight's not over yet. Up front. Yeah, so, you know, the NRA does their candidacy endorsement or their rating of uh, candidate, political candidates. And like in Wyoming, our three national delegates all get A ratings, but they're also the ones leading the charge for the transfer of public land. So I'm curious if there's been talks of maybe like doing some sort of rating system for candidates that are positive for public lands and Yep. So uh, the question is, is, uh, is BHA ready to kind of start rating uh, candidates, right? And, and letting people know where they stand on issues. Uh, so this last year, or in this cycle right now, um, you know, there's, with the presidential candidates, they all went down to Nevada. And, um, and then I think it was the Reno Journal that asked them questions. There was five questions. One of those was about public lands. And so it was a great way for us to, without doing like a candidate scorecard, to like just just provide information to people. Now I'll tell you that the legalities of a scorecard are very complicated uh, because right away they're looking like endorsements, and you know, and and so you have to be very careful as a five hundred one c three, which we are, where we cannot engage in political politics at all. So to be very careful of that, and you know the. The, I've been involved in scorecards and, and what, the way that you kind of get around that is have, instead of having like two questions about public lands that are very leading, you have to have a big array of things that you ask them, right? And, and that threshold is, I mean, that's, it's very complicated, but that threshold, you can do it. Um, is that something that we want to do? I say yes. Do we have, did we have the resources, you know, to be able to do that uh, this last cycle? No. Um, but I think it's something that, uh, you know, providing information to people is something that we're sp supposed to be doing, right? And giving them, letting them make their own decisions. And so without us endorsing candidates, which we cannot do, we can provide that information. I think that's something we'll probably do in the future. You know, I, I totally agree with Landon without getting into the, the exact politics of endorsing anybody or anything. And back to Josh's question a bit. 
I firmly believe that until some people lose their races because of their public land stances, it won't change. And, you know, I'm not saying who it is or who is endorsed or not, but until the sportsmen rise up and penalize people at the ballot box, this is not going to go away because there's political advantage in it. And we have a lot of power, by the way. It's unharnessed. Yeah, it's, I'm not going to get too deep into presidential politics, but it's been, it's frustrating to me that of all front runners, either party, there's not a person who has even an idea of a background in the out of doors, an idea of a background in, in, in hunting, fishing. Um, I don't think it's over, but you know, we've had such a strong tradition of, of outdoors people in politics in this country, and there are some phenomenal senators and congressmen who have you know a strong land ethic both sides of the aisle we're just we're lacking that right now i know a lot of hunters uh get frustrated because either you got one party who tends to advocate on behalf of wilderness and clean air and clean water you got another party that tends to advocate on behalf of firearm ownership and hunting heritage and um i always feel like a political eunuch because you're just you're torn between these two things. I lament the days um, of having both. I think that I don't even want to say a name. There's a guy. There's a senator out of New Mexico that I think hits a very like a wonderful balance. Senator um, Martin Heinrich. Yeah. Superstar for us. Yeah. Strikes a wonderful balance between hunting heritage, firearm ownership, clean air, clean water, wildlife habitat. But right now, it's just absolutely missing from the political realm. John Tester, same thing. Yeah. So you heard it here first, Steve Rinella for president. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I talk about a whole bunch of stuff that most Americans could care less about, man, <laughs> or couldn't care less about. You know, to Steve's point, though, that's why organizations like BHA are so important, because if we don't have Teddy Roosevelt's uh, in office, it's going to take advocacy from very sharply minded orgs like us to influence policy, you know, in the smoke filled rooms and without, you know, orgs like us doing it, we don't just have the innate knowledge of it in the corner office anymore. I was laughing at this internal, very brief internal debate I was having when you mentioned the Badger 2 medicine, because it is a very, very special place and I love it. And I was listening to you talk and thinking, uh, don't say that. Don't say it's beautiful. And I'm like, uh, tell them there's a lot of grizzly bears. Don't go up there, <laughs> you know? But, and every hunter, every fisherman, uh, any bird watcher, you know, you have your special spots and you don't want to show up and see other people there, but you got to be open about this stuff now. And, you know, it's time to, you got to take the gloves off and uh, be willing to say, hey, these places are incredible. You should go there. Just so you know, i I've been known to fly across the room, grab the phone out of my wife's hand as she starts to mention, utter the first letter of the name of a creek I might have been near. So for me to even mention this place, I will tell you, I killed a bull in the Badger Tumad uh, two or three years ago. I saw six different grizzly bears the day I killed that bull, six different bears. So I'm not lying when I say there's a bunch of bears there, but I like those places. We always, uh, we, when we're, our code is uh, Stinkhole Creek. We just I use that for that every place. creek. Every creek, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yanni, got any concluding thoughts? We done with questions? Oh, no, we need more questions. I, just don't, know, I don't know how long it's been. RT. How long has it been? Just over an hour. Oh, really? Two or three things that the um, folks that are listening to this podcast can do to 
act or advocate for public lands, whether they're a single mom in Chicago, they live in an urban environment, whether they're sportsmen or just aspirational, what can they, they do to uh, help preserve these places? So the question is, is what can the listeners of this podcast do to advocate on behalf of these wild places? Is that fair? Uh, can I give one and you give two? Sure. Number one, you got to start voting your sport. You got to strip your sport from the rest of the partisan politics, make ballot box decisions based upon this stuff if it's important to you. So, totally agree. Um, I would say join an organization. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm selfish, and so I say join Backcountry Hunters and Anglers because I think we are... Um, you know, we're tapping into something and we are the advocates for public lands. So join BHA. But if, you know, you want to join the Elk Foundation that helps protect um, elk habitat, Ducks Unlimited that helps protect duck habitat. Yeah, do I that. mean, the list, I mean, you know, National Wild Turkey Federation, there's many, many groups out there. Um, and oftentimes people like one of the, um, I'm going to let you get back to your list, but one of the things that an organization like this provides is a sense of, camaraderie a brotherhood and sisterhood right you can meet like-minded people and share information i mean there's, there's a tremendous um reservoir of experience to draw from if you have a passion for a particular type of hunting particular type of fishing let's say your thing is trolling salmon out in lake michigan you can find an organization that is fighting for clean water in the great lakes you know, um, and then you will find like-minded people and, and get a lot out of that engagement. Yeah, I would, you know, and, and truly, if, 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 if you want to, if you care about public lands, there's not another organization besides BHA that's advocating for you. These other organizations that do great work, a lot of that's on private land, which is vitally important. But if you like public lands, BHA is going to defend that. Or so it's I, very species specific. We're not. We're ecosystem wide. Yeah. So I think that's one, and that's another big plug for BHA. But I think two is make a phone call. You know, I mean, a lot of people think that their voices don't count. And you know, we had we had Senator Tester here earlier this week, and we were asking him, how can we be better advocates? Like, what can we do? Your voice counts, is what he told us. He said, when somebody calls them on the phone, that represents a hundred other like-minded individuals. So then, that's one call. Let's have 10 calls in a day. That's 1,000 people back home. That's starting to get somebody's attention. So that was the first one, make a phone call. The second one is as newspapers, uh, you think they're going away, but they're still read very widely. And you know, senators and congressmen have staff that every single day they go to those editorial uh, pieces of a paper. And if that senator or congressman's name is mentioned, that thing is flagged for them right away. And so while we, that's kind of a, a venue that's going away in a lot of people's minds. It's not the chip shots on social media. Exactly, exactly. And so it's something that has staying power. And so I, like getting involved, and I think you know, we can help you do that, but you can do that as an individual as well. So I, those are the two, like, the two things that I would say. I think too it's important for people to, to learn how to parse out the planks in a politician's platform. You know, it's easy to fall into, I get so sick of hearing people tell me like, you know, oh, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative. I mean, boy, good luck applying that to me because I go by, give me an issue, man. 
give me an issue. And I think that you, if you admire a certain politician and they have, you know, a platform made up of many, many different things, you don't need to go piecemeal. You don't need to go like wholesale, throw in with them on it. You can challenge them. You can still like that person and like what they stand for and challenge them on particular issues and people can move someone in the right direction on a particular issue. It doesn't mean you're abandoning your political identity. Yeah, I think it's hilarious when uh, politicians are called flip-floppers, you know? Now, if, if they're flip-flopping back and forth within a week, that makes sense to me. But what you just described to me is getting more knowledge and, and having a different view on things, which I, if, if, if I, if I was beholden to everything I thought when I was an 18 years old. I, if I was beholden to everything, I'd still be shitting my pants. <laughs> it's like people change over time, man. Exactly, right? And if you're not, if you're not using the environment around you to help educate you and help you evolve, then you're stuck in this space, right? And you're just this dogmatic views. And so I think, you know, when people um, uh, are educated and, and, and learn more about an issue and they change that, that's not flip-flopping, that's evolving to me. Yeah, I always admire someone when, if they've had an opinion and then later on they have to say, based on what I'm hearing from my constituency, I'm gonna have to support this. Because in that way, it is. It's like you can take that too far, but in that way, it's when there's like overwhelming pressure from the majority of people. I think it's perfectly acceptable for a political figure to say instinctively, I was opposed to this, but I cannot ignore what I'm hearing from my constituency. It, this is overwhelming. I have to go against my, what, what my, my gut reaction on this and support wilderness or, or, or any number of things. Sure. You know, I, I think, yeah, we're too like, you know, we're, it's too easy to go like, oh, you're a flip-flopper. Yeah, but again, if someone changes their, if someone says something and then there's an immediate Twitter revolt and they go 180 degrees, it's different than having, than listening to your people who are just driving you insane by telling you you're wrong on this, you're wrong on this, this, and then you change your opinion about it. Yeah. That kind of stuff happens all the time, man. Totally. We should embrace it. Totally. And you can move you can move people in a certain direction just by being around them, articulating them and not being not being an a-hole to them, but trying to explain where you're coming from. We did it. Badger too, Matt. We did it. I mean that's a great example. We moved people. We motivated BHA helped motivate our members. We sent letters. We made calls. We went to meetings. We contributed. Um, we swayed opinion. We got US senators asking secretaries of interior to cancel leases. I mean, on, we, we both can have sides in, of the aisle. on both sides that we can make, we can have impacts. Um, there's a lot of victories we've had. So you're saying the people spoke up and the government made changes on behalf of the people. They shot at them, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know it sounds weird, but it How works, you know, instead of like, uh, like you said, to Facebook, instead of just throwing something up there with half baked facts to piss off the whole world, um, you know, try being constructive, make a call, get involved. They listen, they listen way more than some mem on Facebook. I like that. One last question there in the left. So Go ahead. All four of you have talked pretty extensively about preserving the ecological integrity of public lands for future generations. And we haven't really talked about what I think is perhaps the elephant in the corner, and that is that the same science that we rely on for our management decisions, for our biological management decisions, and for our ecological integrity assessments, is suggesting that by 2050 and 2100, a lot of the lands that we rely on for the production of the animal species that we care intensely about 
are going to be very significantly harmed by climate change. So what do we do as sportsmen and sportswomen and as associations that are interested in preserving the ecological integrity of these lands to consider climate change as an issue? So the question is, all this is great, but what about climate change? Is that fair? I, I, I'm going to try to answer this as quickly as possible because we should just have a whole other discussion of this for an hour and a half. I think that the solution about saving wild lands and wild places, I think is, is the solution is personal and political. I think that climate change issues, it's uh, technological. I, the, the, that issue, I don't think that issue is going to be resolved by American restraint I don't think you canceling your vacation is going to move the needle on climate change because you're not going to be in a jet. It's like there are some gigantic countries out there who aren't thinking about this. I think that the solution is going to come from technological advancement and it's going to come through market incentive. On the, on the wildlife side, it's a monster issue. Um, anybody who thinks about this stuff, I think personally struggles with it. I say the beautiful thing from a wildlife, from a BHA kind of standpoint is, even if you, uh, even with you, even if you struggle with climate change and what if and all that stuff, um, you can't tell me that preserving wildlands is contrary to good science on climate change. Perhaps it's not enough, but I, I know we're going to be on the right side of history there. Even even if history is a little uglier than I, it proves to be a little uglier than I wish it was. Preserving some more wildlands is is, is not going to add to climate change. You know, we're on the right side of that. Uh, the way I would answer that is that, you know, we are seeing impacts already from climate change. And what we need to do to help fish and wildlife have a chance as this world changes is keep these wild places so you have connectivity of habitat, whether that's an elevation or that's north-south or east-west. And so if we fragment the wildlife habitat that we have now, they got no chance, right? And so, and, and you know, whether you believe in climate change and the impacts or not, we're setting up a place for them to be for a long time, whether or not the impacts are huge or not right now. Yeah, give things room to adjust. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people in, in other areas that are just looking at as, you know, again, I don't want to get into the to the house the too detailed the hows and whys, but whether we're seeing a natural phenomenon that will naturally reverse, or if we're seeing something that is a, a one way street, I'm not going to address my opinion on it right now. But there are people looking at just if all this stuff is going to move uphill. What's uphill? Are we ready for that? Are we making it that animals and and that wildlife has like some room? to change and adapt um, and, and go to new places to feed, go to new places to bed, new places to winter, new places to summer. So I think, again, like Ryan was saying, you're on the, either way, you're on the right side of history. You're not going to uh, exacerbate the problem by removing connective corridors between wild areas. Yeah. Totally agreed. Cal? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to lose? I mean, what are we going to lose by protecting these places? 
what are we going to lose if we don't protect them? You know, it's, it's a very simple thing. Can we do concluding thoughts now, Giannis? I think we should. Okay. Giannis? I have one today. Oh, good. I had a great conversation with a gal. I was uh, uh, from a third time in my life since I German started gal? working. No, no. Floridian. She lives all over the country, but I got lucky for the third time in my life and got upgraded. So I, I feel like what's not just great about the leg room up front, but I usually have great conversations with the people I get to sit next to in the front of the plane. So I was, I was stoked and all that work to do, I engaged. But anyways, she's out on the board for the uh, Florida Wildlife Federation. Not a hunter, like a, just a little bit of a fisherman, but she, start, she basically introduces herself as a conservationist. I said, really? Because really, usually, if you're not like hunter-fisherman person, you don't identify with that. Are, are you sure you don't want to call yourself an environmentalist? Like, isn't that who you are? She's like, no, no, I'm a conservationist, you know, first and foremost. And so that spawned this great conversation. And I guess my closing thought is that I think we need to find adversaries outside of hunters and fishermen, you know? Allies. Allies, yeah, sorry. Not at <laughs> <laughs> I was struggling with Good that one. But anyways, yeah, she was telling me about how in Florida, she seems to think that they have no problem whatsoever getting hunters and fishermen together with the environmental types and, and you know, meeting in the middle zone and, and moving forward. And I just feel like too often here, we're like setting ourselves apart and not, you know, get, finding those allies in other places. Because I really feel like in the end, if we're talking about public lands and clean water and whatever, we all have the same goal. And so, yeah, well, if you're a guy in Florida and you have to open up your newspaper to see pictures of literally tens of thousands of dead redfish yes. from uh, sugar production runoff, I think you get some fishermen fired up. Yeah. It, uh, unfortunately, sometimes it takes an image like that. Um, other things play out in slower, less dramatic ways and they don't get as much attention. Concluding thought, Kale. please. Yeah, it's like dealing poker. Now it's Cal's turn. I think I'm all set, you know, in room full of <laughs> folks. It's an easy crowd, right? Like everybody is here for the right thing. Like we're fighting the good fight and keep it up. And uh, as uh, our new uh, chairman here, uh, Ryan Bussey said, you know, change. She just said how change is possible. Don't go occupying any buildings. How's your remodel coming? Oh, it's rough, man. Is there reason not done with it? Huh. Cal's remodeling the place. All by his lonesome. You don't need to sell me on. <laughs> it's going good? I'll find a gal here. Don't worry about it. No, but I'm, no, but not. But I is it coming along? That was where this was going. That is awesome. No, I'm not going. I'm not going that direction. Honestly, is it coming along? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Is, is it like done? Yeah. Next time you guys come down, I'll be sharp. You got a kitchen in there? Yeah. He's Put cooking, on, he's cooking on a camp stove for a long time. Congratulations. Only six months. Lan? Uh, great to have you here, Steve. I was really glad that you and your team were able to come. You know, we've, we've, uh, you, you were here five years ago at our first rendezvous, and you got to witness uh, the growth and the energy of this organization is experiencing. And, and I think, um, you know, and for the listeners that weren't here, um, you know, BHA is on the rise. 
We have members in all 50 states. We have chapters now in 24 states. The stuff that we are trying to put in this bottle, this lightning that we're trying to put in the bottle, you can't experience it unless you go and meet with the other people. And I think what I heard over and over this weekend is, is people found their tribe. And so that energy that we had this weekend, I wanna make sure that goes all across this country. And so the stuff that we've been talking about today, um, we have that for future generations. And, 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 and so for the listeners, uh, check us out. And when there's local events, come talk to those people and see who we are and uh, make up your mind for yourself if you wanna come engage. Ryan? Yeah, I'd echo that. Um, you know, we've, we've just come tremendously far Everybody wants to be a part of a winner, and I feel like BHA is really winning, and I really appreciate you, Steve. Not only have you witnessed it, you've you really influenced it. You're a role model to a lot of people in this org. Um, you know, and I <clears throat> met here over the weekend a, a guy who came from Washington, um, and this is just an example of the sort of people that we pull in and how this energy is building on itself. You know, we got a guy like Steve Ranella, who's the ultimate badass, doesn't have a problem killing stuff, grilling it up, eating it. We've got this guy from Washington who I ran into, heard about BHA, it got him fired up. He's never punched a tag in his life. He drove from Western Central Washington to come here to meet other people from, he didn't know a soul, to meet other people from Washington, to meet people in BHA. He wants to know how to do this. He wants to know how to punch his tag. He wants to know how to preserve wildland. So we've got this spectrum of people who want to be involved. From, from the ultimate, you know, like I said, the ultimate badass is like Steve to the guy who's starting it and is gonna be the ultimate badass. And, you know, we want people on board and um, we're thrilled to be doing this. Yeah, that's what I wanna do for my concluding thought is it's something I've talked about a bunch before is we get probably the number one email. If you're gonna categorize the emails we get in, I think the top category would be people saying, um, I wanna get involved in the outdoors. I didn't grow up around this. Um, how do I do it? You can, you know, even if that's your motivation, you can find great inspiration and great bits of information by joining an organization like this and finding like-minded folks. Um, yeah, well, you can do a good thing, move the needle in the right direction and also learn a lot of skills. I mean, that's not something we've gotten into, but a big part of what's going on at a weekend like this is people are talking shop. You know, I pulled some good information of a, about an area I've always been interested in last night eating my dinner. Do tell. Weird. Stay out of the Badger too, man. No, it wasn't that. It was a different spot. But I'm real curious about going in there. So it's like, yeah, it's not all, you know, it's not, you don't need to come down and just have a big weekend of goody two-shoeing. I mean, you can come down and, uh, and join a group and find some people who like to be out there as much as you like to be out there. And, and um, yeah, man, develop a tribe, you know and have it be the tribe that's on the winning side and doing good work. That's it, thanks for joining. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. 
Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. 